even if you walk in with your international issue passport, yes, they can take it, but the teller usually have never seen that aspect before and they're shuffling through papers. It's not common knowledge and it creates a very difficult process. Then, of course, the stigmatization, the feeling huh, when you're being scrutinized. So most people just, and that's why check cashing in the U.S. may be much easier because I can get a check, I can go to the 7-Eleven, cash the check pay 5%, but at least I get the cash and I'm not asked all these questions. Hello, David. How are you today? I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. I'm doing really well. How are you, Monica? I'm really good. And I, I think the reason why this conversation is so relevant is because we're going to talk about a cohort that is underserved, that it's under a lot of pressure just because of their situation. And you're doing something about it, which I love. And this cohort is illegal. It's immigrants, specifically in the U.S. So it's a very important and relevant topic. I am from Mexico. Mm. And thank God I have not gone through the being an illegal immigrant moving to the U.S., but I've seen the pain points in I was a kid, since I was a kid. And it's a bad pain point. So thank you. Thank you for the work you do first. And thank you for joining the podcast. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me. And I know it's quite late where you are, but thank you for making the time. And it's definitely a pleasure to be on board. Thank you. Okay. So before we go into the work that you do, this podcast is about how do we create fintechs that have more impact. In your opinion, how can we create purpose-driven fintechs that such that we can mas maximize impact? Yeah, I think people may look at this as a very complex uh, undertaking, but whether it's fintechs or just any other uh, business, at least my personal opinion and belief is that if you're solving uh, a community-based problem or, or a societal-based problem, those are usually the best fintechs or the best businesses. So they're there to solve a fundamental issue that is not being solved in the market. And just by the way, markets are designed, uh, the business can be rewarded by solving that particular aspect because it's a pinch point for, for a lot of people. And thankfully, there are always pinch points. They can be inefficiencies. They can be large-scale societal problems. They can be inequality. And I think if businesses, and particularly fintechs, and do that, then they are in a much better place. And I think particularly for fintechs, because of the technology base underpits them, they have, they're bringing technology to solve usually a fundamental problem that has been ongoing for a while. And I think being at that intersection is what really exciting guy that you can be like, okay, now look what we can do. We may not have been able to do this 10 or 15 years ago, but now we can easily do it just because of the advent of technology. That is such a very, very good point. Like my first job was in a development bank in Mexico and we were targeting, actually my first product that I've ever built mm -hmm. was basically targeting remittances from the U.S. to Mexico, the Mexican immigrants in the U.S. to Mexican people who did not have a bank account and we were trying to open a bank account. However, the complexity was so different because Like you say, we 10, 15, 20 years ago, we did not have the technology that we have today. So yeah. the, what we can do with the tech that we have today is impressive. Yeah, no, I, I completely, I completely agree. No, it, it, it does make the process uh, a little bit uh, easier, largely because, and sometimes unexplored in, in mm. that, hey, 
this, this check is here. For us, it has come in the way we, we validate users, for example, uh, where previously it would have been not necessarily impossible, but just very difficult and require a lot of physical work. Someone has to go to a bank, has to do all these things, queue up, take the IDs, but now it's much, much easier. Exactly. Yeah. It's, that's why we're here. Tech yeah. helping us be better. So can you tell us a little bit about why and why you started this journey? Yeah. So my co-founders and I started Wire in, in 2019. And the reason we started it was experiences that we ourselves were undergoing as immigrants in this country. Coincidentally, all my co-founders are immigrants. It was not necessarily by design, but it was this crux where you found yourself undergoing the same problem from different avenues. And the most interesting thing about it is that we were in, what I said, different stages of immigration or even mm -hmm. different classes of immigration, if you mm -hmm. use that word. So I came in as an immigrant student. So I understood mm. that from an F1 visa perspective right, and very, very low income perspective. Whereas Enoy came in as a refugee from, from, oh. from now. It's a completely different experience. Him, he didn't have any papers whatsoever, let alone a passport uh, because everything was attained uh, here. And uh, Hempstone uh, was a businessman. So he was already running a very successful business in Kenya that was offering uh, software and web development uh, to users in the United States. And he was having a very difficult time getting paid. And then Renzo from Peru came in as a medical doctor working for the World Bank where we met. So uh, high income, different uh, class, but for him, he could not get an apartment because he didn't have any credit history. And as a result, he had to, even though he had quote unquote high income, had to put a very big deposit for his uh, uh, apartment, six months, uh, which, you know, for most people, regardless of whether you're middle class or not, be all of a sudden told to pay six months rent front. And that's oh. the first thing that you're starting work, which is like, nearly impossible. And so this was the different circumstances of, of how we met. Uh, and we were each trying to solve this problem from, from different avenues in different areas. And just by sheer chance or circumstance, I, I met my fellow co-founders, uh, Noi and Renzo, we met at the World Bank. We were all World Bank employees. So this was years after I had about, I would say two years after my immigrant, immigrant student journey. Uh, so I graduated, then finally got, I got a job and we realized that we were all experiencing this problem in avenues. And then we thought, why can't we, we solve it or why can't we try to solve it? And so that's, that's how we began. Met. Uh, incorporated in 2019 and started working this journey. COVID happened and slowed us down a little bit, but uh, fast forward to where we are today and uh, officially launched the product in September of last year uh, to uh, wow. Emid Beta and then publicly in uh, May of this year. And we're still, we're still building. So our, our focus is on immigrants and minorities living in and working in the United States. We also realized that a lot of the problems that immigrants were experiencing to a similar extent were being experienced by other minorities in the United States. And this came from avenues of being overlooked by their legacy financial institutions. So mm. they are banked um, or clearly overlooked. You find that in a lot of areas where immigrants are, there are no banks and yeah. access to financial services becomes very difficult. And as you mentioned, with your brother being in the United States, 
when you don't have that foundational element of financial access, particularly in the United States, it makes it very, very difficult to build a wealth. You may have a job, but if that job doesn't translate to financial access in terms of being recognized in the system, then it becomes difficult, if not impossible, to build credit. If you can't build credit, it becomes very difficult to get an apartment. If you can't get an apartment, you, you can keep going down uh, mm-hmm. this road. So whether it's from a healthcare perspective or from a livelihood perspective, financial access really underpins wealth building and wealth creation in the United States and in many other countries that would, that would assume as well. Yes, I have never thought about moving to a new country and then having to pay up front six months of rent. It was just not part of my thinking. So yeah. exactly. It's just like the challenges of an immigrant as such in the U.S. So you... you, you Explain, like you and your co-founders, you all came to the U.S. as immigrants, but very different type of immigrants. When we look at WIA, do you specialize in a category of immigrants, a sub-segment, let's say, or do, do you cover all of the immigrants? In, in short, yes, we, we, we do specialize, at least at the beginning stage, uh, because you can't be everything for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we grow, we expect to be... Uh, our, our internally, what we say is that we want to be that a neo bank for people living and working outside their home. Uh, regardless, amazing. Of, I need yeah. that. <laughs> In the starting off phase, at least what we have built is the the checking account. That one is live, and so we do have other products that will be up 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 and coming, particularly this quarter and the next quarter, that will cater to different classes. For example, right now, we may not be able to cater to people who want mortgages. That is coming when we open our lending and mortgage. But uh, in, in short, people who can open a bank account with us, essentially immigrant students, we have a lot of uh, non-skilled and semi-skilled workers, but we are also reaching for the professional class. You find that there is, depending on your need, there's a different access point. Mm. So for some people, and they they don't need our they don't need wire because Bank of America, for example, is already solving. We we can make the argument that it's not solving it very well because they are not able to articulate their their history and their fundamental need in terms of immigrants and money, uh, and that's a different conversation. But we do feel, at least for now, what we have is for the someone who is recently immigrated in the United States or a, a minority who is essentially denied access to the regular banking rails for a variety of reasons. Usually it's the convenience part as underpinned particularly for minorities. And then for, for immigrants, it's just being able to understand that particular story, but being able to say, hey, you have a valid passport, we'll accept it as, 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 as your ID. It doesn't need to be a U.S. issue. Okay. You have a, I guess, a basic sensitive question. <laughs> and I'll use Mexico because that's my nationality. So not to, not to offend anyone. So if I, a Mexican person, and I cross the border illegally, I already paid all these fees and I came in through whichever way. Then can I open a bank account? Can I go with you and open a bank account as an illegal immigrant? Like, how do they do it? So the short answer is, is yes, there are some hoops that you need to jump over that, that we are legally mandated because of 
anti-money laundering and anti-terrorism activities and just the make sure that you're not on some back place. The, uh, yes. So we can't just say, hey, open an account without any uh, identification. So we wouldn't be able to do that. However, so one of the largest problems that immigrants may have, at least it happened to me, is when I went to my local Wells Fargo at the time, the person on the other side of the counter asked me for my U.S. issued ID. I didn't have it because I wasn't driving. It was I was just uh, a student. The only ID I had was my I twenty and my passport, which was that. But that was not not good enough. There are some banks, I should say, who do accept those documents. They're not necessarily well publicized. But what I'm saying is that it's not the norm. Even if you walk into Chase or JP Morgan aspect and you walk in with your international issue passport, yes, they can take it. But the teller usually have never seen that aspect before and they, they're shuffling through papers. It's not common knowledge and it creates a very difficult, a diff, very difficult process. Then, of course, there's the stigmatization, the, the feeling huh? when, when you're being scrutinized. Yes. Why don't you, you have feel this? like. Yeah. So most people just. And that's why check cashing in the U.S. may, 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 may be much easier because I can get a check. I can go to the 7-Eleven, cash the check, pay 5%, but at least I get the cash and I'm not asked all these questions. Interesting. It's largely fair. But to, to your question more specifically, yes. So what you would need is yeah. you just need your, your valid uh, passport uh, as long as that document is valid. And we're getting to the point where we can take other identification documents for example, a Mexican driver's license. We're not there yet, but we are working with our KYC providers to be able to, mm-hmm. to, to accept those, those documents as long as they're valid and issued and they meet certain level of international standards. And we're trying to move away from this whole aspect of that is quite common. I was like, yeah, you have a license from Germany, then you can accept it. But if you have a license from Mexico, no, no, it's no good. <laughs> So we have stratified, unfortunately. Yeah, we have stratified the different countries where you'll find, quite frankly, a lot of developing countries have very stellar, not superior IDs in terms of anti-forgery and so forth. Uh, so at least for now, uh, to uh, answer your question in short, uh, you can open an account uh, if you have your passport. And then what we do is uh, if you don't have a, a social security number, we do take an ITIN, which is a tax ID. And if you don't have that, we, the large part of why is to facilitate financial education and, and, and create those opportunities. So beyond just the provision of financial access, we are also, we have podcasts, we have a lot of material. If someone wants to open an account, but they don't have that particular one, say, okay, this is how you get your ITIN. This is where you go. This is the application form, mm-hmm. submit it. And then once you get the document, come back to us and, and, and we'll be able to open it. Oh, that's awesome. So coming back to the core segment is immigrants in the U.S. Can you share with us how big is this population? Give us some numbers to have a feel of the immigrant population in the U.S. Yeah, it's, it's relatively big. And, and that's the surprising part uh, because the fact that it's so large but so overlooked, it's just perplexing because if you're just a pure MBA from Harvard, it's like, hey, this makes perfect sense. This is where you should go to open a business. So that's where the money is. 
I, I think it's just from the perception from the banks. It's not our, our, our typical, it's a little bit of more work, but it's, it's quite light. So what you know about the United States is that the United States has the largest immigrant population. So which is pretty fundamental. It's, it's a nation of immigrants, not even the immediate immigrants of first, second generation immigrants, but U.S. population of immigrants is 44 million, which is the largest one, which is significant to put it into perspective, yeah. almost the size of my country, Kenya. That's what I'm about to say. Like it's bigger than Malaysia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it. Uh, and then the numbers even get more interesting. They make up roughly 22% of the U.S. GDP, uh, $3.9 mm -hmm. trillion dollars per year. And it's a significant amount. And uh, roughly, and then if you even break it down even further, the quote-unquote illegal immigrants contribute nearly $600 billion a year to the U.S. to the U.S. economy in taxes in, 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 in economy specification, which is, which is interesting to have such a large number to when you're running your race with your hands behind your back. And then the last statistic is that, uh, immigrants only though the, the number of SMEs in the United States, uh, immigrants only make up 9% of the SMEs in the United States, but they contribute 25%, uh, uh, of the, uh, total SME contribution to the economy, which is meaning that they are punching well about their, 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 their wage class. They make up 9%, but a quarter of, uh, of, of the, uh, SMEs are owned by, by, by immigrants, which is pretty substantial. And then of course you can get into the other different contributions, which, you know, the immigrants are on the helms of starting or fortune 500 companies. How many, how many companies have been started by immigrants? And you even start to take a look at the, at the, at the biggest ones, Elon Musk. The CEO of Google, Steve Jobs was an immigrant uh, from immigrant parents. I mean, there, there, there is so much of this that is quite blatantly evident out there, but still largely, not necessarily, I wouldn't say misunderstood, but unknown. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think that's because as an immigrant, you must survive, <laughs> right? Yeah, you have your yeah. home country, the comfort of home, and then you must survive in this new country. Yeah. And then that helps you build all these skills that, yeah, yeah it doesn't surprise me that there is tons of SMEs contributing a, a ton because you have to survive. And you do it without bringing attention to yourself. Huh? You're not beating your own drum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what are the biggest challenges then that immigrants have when it comes to moving to the U.S. and then accessing the financial services system as such? Moving to the United States is, is okay, moving, let me start off by saying moving to any country has significant challenges. Just I moved not. to Zimbabwe for a year and that was a significant Moving to the United States or moving to another developed country like the United States. Uh, but let me just talk about the United States. There are certain differences that immigrants will face and all. So usually they're moving from a place that cash is widely accepted. In Kenya, for example, where I'm natively from, you can pay for your rent in cash. You can put your down payment in cash. You can buy a house in cash. In the United States, you can't do any of that. And if, and if you do, then there's, there's always 
why is the, why is the person, I remember I bought a car for my mom, we were going to buy a car and the seller insisted that we pay in cash $20,000. And then you're like, you know what? I'm just going to leave that deal. That just sounds too, too, too suspicious. Why don't we want a, a record keeping of, of it? And it starts off by trying to go to the bank to get $20,000 in cash. You ask so many questions. You're like, why do you need, it's your own money, but. Oh, uh, of course. Yeah. Like. Uh, and and it, it, I guess the underpinning this is the money laundering aspect. Exactly. Is, you know, uh, and, and trafficking aspect. So the fact that cash is, you know, not widely accepted as a, as a medium for trade in a lot of things, unless you're buying a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, mm -hmm. that's uh, it makes it very difficult to integrate into the system because if you don't have a bank account, or you don't have a way to pay for those things through electronic mediums, then you're essentially kept from doing so. So it means that if you can only pay for your apartment in cash, then the apartments that you select will usually be in neighborhoods that are not so stellar or neighborhoods where there may be a lot of illegal activity. And that's why they accept, they accept cash. So you'll find people living in neighborhoods, not necessarily by choice, because they are excluded from the financial system. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's one. And, and, and two, even if you have the cash, there'll be people who have the cash and it's in a bank system, but because you don't have the credit history, then you're not able to, uh, to get a, an apartment. That's what happened to my colleague, Renzo. It's that it's not that he didn't have the money. So first of all, it was the hurdle of, okay, you can't pay in cash. And at first, he, they, he thought that the person was meaning that the cash could be fake. And he goes, no, 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 it's really real. It's really real. No, it's like, no we can't take $18,000 in cash for your six months. For your six months aspect. It's just not safe for anyone. But beyond that, even if you do have the money, they want to pull your credit history to see your ability to pay. And if you don't have your credit history, then they'll say you make cash. But your credit history doesn't illicit confidence. Uh, and even me, when I, when I, when I rent out my place, it's the first thing that I pull on zero on Redfit. Let me pull someone's rental history. Let me pull someone's credit history. Now, if you've been paying by cash for your rent, as I did as a student, that history is not recorded at all. So I can't, I can't see those transactions. And if you're telling me you've been renting successfully for eight years, I'm like, how do I know? There is no there's no, there's no transaction. So you'll find a lot of landlords who like, I, I, unless you have a credit history, unless you have some proof of financial transaction, like, yeah, accept, can't accept this. So it makes the U.S. just completely very peculiar. And then there is the notion of what documentation is needed to open an account. Now, legally, uh, you just need to be able to identify yourself. It doesn't necessarily say what document you need. The government does not say, you need to have a social security number. You need to have a passport. It just says you need to be able to identify Monica and, and pass reasonable KYC. That, that internal policy is set up by the banks. Now, different banks have different policies. But for the most part, they take the load of risk resistance. So they will take US issues IDs. They're very familiar with those. Okay. They will pull social security because social security give them a, a huge history of person. And so if you don't have those two things, it becomes very difficult to open, to open an account. Not impossible, but very difficult. 
once you now factor in the stigmatization, the questions that you asked, most people just feel legitimately as if it's, it's, it's a very negative interview. And so you like the feeling of it may make you feel, you know what, let me just move away from this. And then if you merge that with the fear that some particularly legal immigrants may feel, why are they so hard pressed on knowing where I live? Are they going to be passing this on to the United States Immigration Service? And there's also a lack of understanding, which is where we feel financial education is important. Yes, uh, you just touched a very good point. So basically, as an illegal immigrant, I can go to the bank and open a bank account. Legally. But it's a, I'm an illegal resident in the country, but I'm putting my money from my work as an illegal immigrant in, a, in the legal system. But I don't have a work permit, basically. And that's how it works. Yeah. Yes. And, and you'll find okay. from from an education perspective, and that's where we we're, we're really focused on 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 uh, financial education and literacy, and just informing people that uh, because if you're not informed, then you may live your life out of fear, just make a lot of unreasonable choices that may impact your financial health and your health in general, simply because you do not know. So, for example, yes, you can be an illegal immigrant, but you can legally open a bank account in my country, Kenya. That is impossible. Exactly. If you don't have your legal status, no bank is going to ask, allow you to open a bank account. Uh, the reason being is because what they ask for is the legal documentation. As for example, my wife is Norwegian when we're in, in Kenya and to add her to my bank account, they, not only do you, it's not actually the visa that she needs because she has a visa. It's the, the dependent uh, pass that they call it, or the, kind of like the, the green card residency equivalent of it. And if you don't have that, then you can't open a bank account. The U.S., surprisingly, is, is, is quite, and I'm very glad for that, it's, it's quite different in that they're like, we don't really care whether you're, you're an illegal immigrant. We would prefer if you're a legal immigrant, but that is not the crux that we use to allow you to open a bank. You can travel freely within the United States. You buy property. You can do all that stuff without needing that legal status. You can buy a property? Yeah, as an illegal yeah. immigrant. Yeah. Legally, yeah, of course. Oh, you wow. find that it's very interesting. So even, for example, the reason why, you know, even the ITINs came about is, you know, why the IRS issued these things. It's because the IRS at the end of the day just wants people to pay tax. They don't particularly care about your, your legal status. And and, and you'll, interestingly, and this is a different aspect of conversation, that aspect of paying taxes is what catches a lot of criminals, the Al Capones and all these other ones. We can't prove that they're doing illegal activity, but we know they haven't paid their taxes. The income is coming in. <laughs> it becomes, becomes a, a way for the, for the government. So as an illegal immigrant, I can pay taxes in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, you, you can. Oh. You, yeah. You, you, you can't. I've, I've, I've encouraged, and, and it's on a fearful part, a perspective, I've encouraged people to look, you don't want this tackle, then the IRS now coming after you and garnish your wages and all these other things simply because you're not paying tax. So just get a, a tax ID number, pay your taxes. It, it's, 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 it's a very, 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 and you'll find that surprisingly, a lot of immigrants pay significant 
even a larger share of taxes relative to the equivalent U.S. based population simply out of that that fear, because they're like, you know what, I just want to cross my T's and dot my I's. Let me. Oh wow! I like I could have fear if I were to move right now. So they like my grant that I won't. <laughs> I would be like, oh my God, but if I open a bank account and pay my taxes, they will come and get me because I, they know I am here. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, that's going to be my, do you know, that's my natural fear of knowing, oh no, but they know I'm here rather than, oh, that pay me cash and I'll do everything in cash and then you don't know that I'm existing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's, that's a perception and that's, that's what we are trying to educate us. Look, you, you don't need to live your life in this fear, the cool thing about the United States is the nation of laws. Uh, and it's, 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 it's quite clear. Yes, you can enter the country illegally. You can enter the country illegally and tomorrow go register and, 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 and say, hey, I'm here legally. And I wouldn't encourage anyone to do this, but unless you, you commit a high crime, more than likely they're not going to come after you. They're, they're not very concerned about, about that. It doesn't mean necessarily that you can't get deported. But what I'm saying is that you don't have to live your life in fear as an immigrant in the United States and do things a lot under the table, take cash payments and everything else. You can take those cash payments, go and open an account. You can get a, a tax ID number and open an account. The last example I would give is my, my developer who is from uh, El Salvador came in as an illegal immigrant. I know he came in as an illegal immigrant, one, because he told me in no uncertain terms. But despite that, he has a registered business in the, in the city of Washington, D.C. He has a business license. So when you call him to do your plumbing or your walls, he is actually licensed. And he has an ITIN to where I'm, I'm able to get him to issue me a receipt that I can say, hey, this particular person, and I can withhold that from all my taxes. And he himself is paying his taxes because we're, we're, we're doing this formally in the system. And it, that's more or less the beauty of it is that he is, he is an example of a man who has, even despite his immigration status, has taken advantage of the formalization of his business and he's building roles for his family because he's, there, there's a shortage of registered contracts in the city that I live in who are essentially fair and not and so those SMEs are remarkably important. And despite his illegal status, he's able to do that particular stuff and contribute. You are opening my eyes. I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't know all of this. Yeah, but it's empowering in a way. Now yeah. I understand why people go through all these hoops to get into the U.S. Because I understand some of their living conditions just by being, for example, from a country like Mexico. And the challenges that they have back home. And then many of them risk their lives to just go through. But once you're on the other side, it is very tough. Yes, it is very tough. But there is a way to manage the system somehow. Yeah, yeah. Very true. Oh, wow. That's, that's, um, that's new for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'm going to change the narrative a little bit. Sure. You have an impressive career and oh. you've been financial inclusion, financial well-being advocates like for many years. So in your opinion, let's start with 
What is financial inclusion? Let's go back to the basics. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, it's funny now. I think of this terms in very high level. Sometimes when you ask me to define it in very simple terms, really? it, can, it can be quite difficult. But let's, let's, let's just go up even before we define the financial aspect. It's just the, the word inclusion. Uh, and that purely is to uh, include someone. What you're including them with in into is irrelevant. But in this particular case, is in the uh, access to finances or access to the financial sector. So when we say financial inclusion, it goes back to this conversation that we'll be having there. People who are operating outside the rails of, of formalized financial system. So when I say I want to financially include them, I'm talking about, can we break them into the rails so these people can be, can be recognized because it's why that recognition, because that recognition is the, the underpinning that builds wealth or builds stability in this country. So if you take a look at the wealth, particularly amongst immigrants or amongst minorities, a large part of that is because they were excluded from the financial mm. system. And if you think of the United States historically, it has unfortunately a very sad history when it comes to how it treated minorities. So Latinos, Blacks, and other people of color in policies like redlining, where you specifically exclude someone from the ability to buy a house. And because oh, wow. at the house, then it you rid them of that of that of that wealth gap. But how do you exclude them from the ability to buy a house? Is that you 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 exclude them from from financial access? That becomes the underpinning aspect. It's the step one, and usually the most fundamental step in multiple countries, but definitely in this one is that it doesn't matter whether you have a job that is paying pretty well, if you're not able to move those funds into the financial system, it's very difficult in this country to build, to build wealth because, for example, right now, even if you're earning $100,000 a year, which is a, a very uh, above, above average uh, income, you can't buy a house uh, with that money. You would have to save for 10, 15 years of not doing anything else but saving so that you can take those cash payments and buy a house. And because that's not impossible, and that's where credit, that's impossible. And that's where credit comes into place. If you're excluded from the financial system, then you're not able to build that particular wealth because you cannot take earnings from the future to bring them here to buy this, to buy this house. And this is, this is like a, an example of someone who is financially excluded. And, and this can translate into, into other factors, health and wellness, for example. Insurance is very expensive in this particular country, or rather access to health is very expensive in, the, in this country. And people who don't have insurance by a large extent also are not very financially secure. And so there, there are a lot of other, you can pull multiple different levers and you can walk this on, on different aspects when it comes to what is the definition we're going to use for human wellness. And for me, the reason why I focus on financial inclusion is I don't see the panacea as for everything, but I see it as, as a good way to solve a lot of societal problems in that, okay, do we want to address low income neighborhoods in this particular country? Yes. Okay. 
let's start on the financial access. Okay. Do we want to address education or the lack of education in low income countries or in low income communities? Then let's start off on their, on their financial, financial wellness, because you, you're starting off in a race and you're, you're way in the back, largely because your parents couldn't afford, like in this country, a Head Start program, or you lived in a neighborhood that the school systems or daycares were not there or they were too expensive. And so you have an individual who's suffering from, sorry, alarm is going off here. Let me turn it off. So you, you're having an individual who is suffering educationally, but th that suffering starts off from the lack of access to, into the system. So uh, in short, hopefully, hopefully I answered it, but that's, that's what we mean by including people into the financial system. Uh, yes, I think it's very clear. And I think you explained really well the implications of being excluded as such. It, it, it can be, it can be painful and, and I've seen it from multiple different, different avenues from, I've mainly worked, at least in my background in, in the World Bank, I've always worn a, a financial sector, but I worked a lot in the health and education system. Then you could see what that lack of financial access was doing for health and education. Uh, and uh, those were just two elements that we, that, we, that, we, that we could use, but it's, it's definitely a, a very important, a very important aspect. Just to go a little bit deeper, when it comes to financial inclusion, but it's a big topic, what are the challenges or problem statements that we as fintechs should be trying to solve? in order to solve for financial inclusion? Yeah. So as fintechs, that's, 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 that's a very good question. And then it goes back to what we were talking about. I think for, for, for us, it's, it's, it's a system where everyone can access financial services that can help them build wealth, including savings, credit, loans, equity, and insurance. And so you can have a fintech company that is focused on insurance. You can have a fintech company that is focused on uh, on investments and wealth building, like Robin Hood, for example, where now you have made it access to investing a little bit more simply, a little bit more understandable. You can have fintechs like Mint, which unfortunately is, is closing this, this year, but from a budgeting perspective, that was very helpful for me going, going, growing up. And during my formative years in, in college is that, okay, how do I budget? And then there was this fintech Mint app that was free, thankfully, that I could input my stuff and I could come up with goals. I could come up, see where my money was going. I think fintech, whether it is directly in insurance tech, in health tech, in, in pure banking like we are, there are a lot of avenues that, that, we, can, that we can underpin uh, when it comes to access in, in the marketplace. Because from a general perspective, I feel that individuals still suffer from their lack of knowledge when it comes to this. Just using fintech that is focusing on, on, on insurance, for example. Insurance is complicated regardless of where you are. It's very complicated here. You have fintechs that are trying to demystify that process. 
And sometimes it may not be necessarily explaining it to the individual, but by giving them access to buy their products that are very useful for them. And I think fintech in general can, can play that role because institutions, whether they are financial institutions or whether they are health institutions, just by general design, are not the most formative when it comes to advent technology. And I think that's where the fintechs come in is that you, 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 you take what we've built, for example, and, and, and you, you couple it with uh, a traditional bank and then you can build something, something remarkable because at the end of the day, on this backend, you still need someone to do the regulatory banking aspect. And from capital requirements, that's completely prohibited for us. But at the same time, the bank wants our customers. They want the tech that we build. They want the intellectual property. And they're able to expand into those without building a single branch. So it becomes a very, a very nice, nice well, So you're enabled by a bank. Yes, yes, yes. yes. You, 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 you have to. And, and that's part of the, of the, the fight, I would say, is that you have to find a bank that believes in your vision and that also un- un- understands, but that understands comes from how you explain it in terms of it. Sometimes, at, at the end of the day, in this capitalist society, you come with the, the market analysis. It's like, okay, this is how much we stand to make, or, or this is the type of impact we stand to have. Then you can have more formative conversations. And thankfully, compared to 10 years ago, it, 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 is, it is much easier. And there are companies that are helping fintechs like us in, in terms of that problem-solving and solution. Yes, I like that. And I'm seeing that as a theme. I spoke with a CEO in Mexico, same, she's very focused on financial inclusion. And she talks about like partnering with the banks. I spoke with an AI fintech. And it's all about partnering with the banks. I'm like, yeah. oh, <laughs> we see a theme you, now. You, you definitely have to. For us, we've been uh, very uh, fortunate to have great supporters in our banking. We have MasterCard, for example, who has been instrumental in, in support. And, 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 mm-hmm. and on, on the one hand, it brings credibility to what you're doing when you have MasterCard stand behind brand. On the other part, from our perspective, oh yeah, actually, you know, MasterCard believes in us. You're like, onto something right. If they, if they looked at our numbers and they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, we like what you're doing. So you have a a great number of smart people who are standing and looking at this and and they said, yes, let's move forward. We're like, okay, we we feel very good. We were not living in a pipe dream. (laughs) That is awesome. So. Yeah, you're not living in a pipe dream. Definitely, you're having a lot of impact. I want to ask like a marketing question. Mm-hmm. How do you reach out to your customers? Because it's a very specific community. They are not, they are hanging out in social media, but not just in social media, I'm assuming. Yeah, how do you reach out to them? Yeah. One of the, 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 um, the, the two ways, uh, the, the short answer is we, we use traditional marketing, digital marketing, just like everyone else does. But we also have an ace up our sleeves is that we go down to the community itself and we, we meet with the community organizers, largely because we are part of that uh, community. So what we have done for us, ourselves, at least that's why, is that we understand the problem because we're immigrants ourselves. 
when we came to building these things, we reached out to other immigrants and asked them, if you were to build a financial institution or what about your bank do you not like and what could you change? And you get a lot of feedback that way. And we tell you, well, I would like for them to change this. I, I really dislike this particular part. And so you start using that for your product development. And then once you rebuild it, we, we took it out to, to those same individuals and like, okay, hey, we took your feedback, we've built it. This is what we have. You might, you might testing it. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is really great. Finally, uh, an institution for us, by us. And there's that kind of pride that comes with it. Uh, and then we say, tell others. And so we reach out within the community aspects. And because we really believe in impact, not just as a lip service, but we work within the community. And so whether it is within municipalities or universities or other, we call it diaspora organizations. The, the interesting thing about immigrants, they, they come into this country and they associate amongst themselves. So if you want to reach, for example, the, the Mexican community in Houston, I'm sure pretty, it, it, in about an hour or two of speaking to a few of my Latino friends, I can find out who I need to speak to. And then you go and speak to yes. that person, you tell them what they're building, and then you have this community leaders then push it down. So that's what we've done by actually working within the community ourselves and within the community leaders. And then we couple that with the, the traditional marketing that what everybody is doing. But we're finding that the fast part is actually not only building a lot more credibility, uh, but you get a lot of word of mouth and you get a lot of uh, trust because, oh, why am I going to try why? I'm going to try why because Monica told me about it and, and I trust Monica as a result. I will, I will trust why. That is so interesting. Even I think about my life and now that you say, hey, I, I, I reach out to the community lead and then in one hour I know who to speak to if I want to find the Mexican community. And I'm like, yeah, we have a WhatsApp group here. <laughs> It's, if you find one of those ladies, then it's boom. All of us know because it's yeah. a WhatsApp community and we post everything there and then everybody knows. So, yeah, yeah that is true. Happen, yeah, they're, they're usually, we all, we all unfortunately have this stereotypical picture. Who, who is the, the, the voice in the community? And I would say nine times out of 10, they're not what I expected. I'm always surprised. <laughs> they sometimes they're the most non-tech of, of, of the people, but there's this element of trust and the, the, the ladies, it's unbelievable. Just if you want to something just spread like the, like wildfire, at least within the immigrant community, within the Kenyan community, for example, and you don't approach the ladies and you just think, oh yeah, you should speak to the men, the, the main bread islands, it will not go anywhere. At least that's what, that's what our experience has been. It's, uh, it's our moms who actually, the conversations that they have, I find a lot more impactful and more concerning about the community than when I, when I sit around the table amongst my, my, my male peers, because they are, they're talking, they're more talking about, okay, how are we going to pay for this healthcare? How are we going to pay for this, for this school fees? How are we going to pay this? There's a very different aspect of it. And so you find that, and then the savings culture as well, particularly among uh, immigrant moms, it's, it's it's very well developed. And so I found that that becomes a very good medium uh, for us to approach the community with, which is powerful. Much, much, much uh, hats go yeah. off to, to the ladies in terms of what they're doing within our communities. Yes. And you surprised me again, because it's like you say, it's the communities, but it's not a organization for the community. It's the 
hey, we are a community with the same identity yeah, or yeah. same struggle, and we're just hang out and then we help each other. It's genuinely yeah. Yeah. community. It's definitely, yeah. It's definitely community. I, I would say, and we don't have the most widely representative sample, but from my interaction, it has been the not organizational community more so than the organization community. When I try to reach out the, the West African Chamber of Congress, that aspect doesn't go as deep as me trying to find who are the Ghanaian community leaders and, and they, what are they doing? Are they in the churches? Are they in the mosques? Or where are they? And then finding these individual people. And it's, it's not organized. You would find them registered anywhere. But you're like, okay, you, you get into some random WhatsApp group and boom, you have 300 users. That is cool. Yeah, I like that. I I really like that approach. Yeah, that's how you reach the people by getting close to the people. Yeah. Yeah. I'm loving this conversation, (laughs) but I could go on and on and on, but we need to to close it down. So where can we find you and more about Waya? Yeah. So Waya is pretty easy. It's W-A-Y-A and our website is getwire.com g-e-t-w-a-y-a.com we are on facebook linkedin and twitter or i guess x formerly twitter and also we are on the google play store and the apple play store so just go ahead download the app easy to set up for those in the u.s in about seven to ten minutes you'll have a bank account that's ready for you to utilize you can request your debit cards, you can set up your direct deposit, you can get paid there, you can pay others. And then myself, my name is uh, David. That's my name on, on across the social media platforms as well. LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and, and X. But yeah, those, that's essentially where you can find us. And, and yeah, please spread the word. Tell your friends. Yes. Tell them to tell their friends. Definitely, yes. Yeah. Just one more question before we go. I ask this to every guest at the very end. That it's if we were, if you were to change one thing in the fintech industry that could have the most impact to customers, colleagues, and investors, what could you change? Oh, what would I change? That's a very good question. I, for me, I would, I would change the the onboarding requirements. Mm. I would, I would make it more plausible or at least helping people understand uh, why it is this information is, 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 is being collected. And then two, I would make it, it's a battle that we're fighting. I would make it as widely available as possible. So as long as it's a, a legal issued document, I would accept it. I wouldn't limit it to just... U.S. issued IDs and U.S. issued passports. I would take Mexican passports, Argentinian passports, Kenyan passports out. And, and then you would give a lot more people that inclusion that we're talking. Yes, I think that sounds sensible because then you give accessibility to everyone, regardless yeah. of their nationality. You, yeah. can, you can open the account anyway, so now make it easy, frictionless. Cool. It's been an absolute pleasure having you in the show, David. Thanks so much for Thank sharing you. your time and wisdom. Thank you so much. Yeah, pleasure is all mine and I really enjoyed it. Thank you, David. Yeah. Everyone, see you next week. And in the meantime, keep thinking. 
customer, colleagues, and let's have some impact.